traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to The Ancient World. Episode 3, Wherever I Went, Let Him Go. Last episode, we traveled across the Atlantic to witness the emergence of the Norte Chico culture of Peru, the earliest civilization to take root in the not-so-aptly-named New World. Then we return to Europe to discuss the mysterious henge builders of Neolithic Britain and the wide-ranging cultural influence of Minoan Crete. This week, I'm going to shift the focus back to Mesopotamia and take a detailed look at the action-packed period between 2700 and 2000 BC. And, wouldn't you know it, we leave them alone for one podcast and those darn Sumerians are fighting again. As we discussed previously, Sumerian city-states had grown to encompass the surrounding agricultural land, and tensions had begun to flare at the borders between rival territories. The southern cities of Lagash and Uma, in particular, had a long-standing feud, with an inscription by King Enmatena of Lagash stating, If a man of Uma crosses the boundary channel, may Enlil destroy him. May Ningursu, after casting his great battle net, place his hands and feet upon him. May the people of his own city, after rising up against him, kill him in the midst of his city. No trespassing signs were a lot harsher back then. By the middle of the 3rd millennium BC, the cities of Uruk and Ur had been vying for primacy over Sumer for centuries. Finally, in 2400 BC, the city of Lagash conquered them both along with all other city-states, to form the first cohesive Sumerian kingdom, even if it was one forged and maintained through force alone. Aenatum, the conquering Lagash king, is probably best known for his Stele of the Vultures. This Stele, commissioned to celebrate the king's victory over the city of Uma, shows vultures carrying away the severed heads of his enemies, and was apparently designed to instill fear in anyone who might oppose his rule. The stele also provides us with valuable information about the nature of early Sumerian warfare. For instance, it just happens to include the first known depiction of soldiers, equipped with spears, helmets, and full-body shields, using the rectangular massed phalanx formation that would still be common thousands of years later in the Classical Age. 
In addition to spears, Sumerian soldiers also used maces, bows, slings, and a relatively new invention, the bronze battle-axe. The last major weapon in the Near Eastern warrior's arsenal, the curved or sickle sword, would be adapted slightly later using a Canaanite design favored by the Assyrians, which itself evolved from crescent-shaped battle-axes. This was also the period where the Sumerians first started using war wagons drawn by oxen or asses, later replaced by horses, to carry teams of spearmen and charioteers into battle. Urukajina, a later Lagash king, was known for his judicial, social, and economic reforms, as well as for issuing the earliest known written legal code, some 500 years before Hammurabi. A few examples of his more enlightened rule include the exemption of widows and orphans from paying taxes, the city covering the cost of funerals, including the requisite three jugs of beer for libations, limitations on the interest that could be charged for a loan, and a law forbidding rich men to compel poor men to sell them their land or property. Urukajina's code is considered the first recorded example of government reform, and appears mainly designed to curb what had become common abuses by the powerful priesthood and large property owners. A praise poem written in Urukajina's honor exalted that, under his rule, the administrators no longer plunder the orchards of the poor. In 2350 BC, a priest king from the Sumerian city of Uma named Lugalzagesi overthrew the Lagash dynasty, conquered Uruk and made it his capital, and took over the rule of Sumer. Meanwhile, to the north, another regional power was watching this game of musical chairs and waiting for the perfect opportunity to strike. The Akkadians, briefly alluded to earlier as the ones who would put down the Epic of Gilgamesh in the form known to us today, lived in central Mesopotamia on the east bank of the Euphrates, and over time had become rivals to the Sumerians. This northern people, and their language, were referred to as Akkadian in retrospect, as they were not associated with the city of Akkad, or Agade, until it became their capital later on. In 2334 BC, with the Sumerians weakened by centuries of bloody internal warfare, the Akkadians sensed their golden opportunity. Their ruler at the time was Sargon, the king of Kish, later to be known as Sargon the Great so you might get an idea where things are headed. Sargon is a very important figure in early Mesopotamian history for two main reasons. First, he is one of the first ancient rulers about whom we have a fair amount of information, provided one can separate the history from the myth. Secondly, his ambitions and accomplishments not only changed the nature of politics and warfare in the region forever, but also continued to inspire Near Eastern rulers for the next 2,000 years, many of whom claimed, sometimes quite explicitly, to be following his shining example. So let's dig in a bit and see what we can learn. Stop me if you've heard this before. A very special child is separated from his parents shortly after birth and set adrift, until being found and raised by a kindly couple. I'm guessing you either went with Moses or Superman, but actually the first one to come up with this particular secret origin, in retrospect at least, was Sargon of Akkad. According to the Sargon legend, 
Sargon was the illegitimate son of a temple priestess who, in the general heroic style of Moses or Superman, was set adrift on the Euphrates in a basket and found and raised by humble parents in the city of Kish. His adopted father was a gardener, with responsibility for the critical task of clearing out and maintaining the city's irrigation canals. Sargon supposedly followed in his footsteps. Assuming this is true, the job would have given him access to a disciplined corps of workers, who may have later served him as his first soldiers. Somehow, at some point, Sargon caught the attention of the ruling family of Kish, and found himself elevated to the rank of cupbearer to the king, Urzababa. Upon the king's death, at whose hands is unknown, Sargon quickly took advantage of his new position to seize control of the city. Kind of a break with the Superman storyline, but hey, this is the ancient Near East. Exactly how Sargon accomplished this takeover, and what forces he had at his disposal, are unknown. But it's pretty clear he realized that, even with Kish pacified, his rule was still on fairly shaky ground. His adopted name of Sargon means true king, which is fairly unsurprising for an usurper wanting to establish a sense of legitimacy. But a name change alone wasn't going to do it. Sargon had to give the people what they wanted, which, at this time and place, was a strong leader who could win military victories. With his home base secured, he turned his attention to the warring city-states of Sumer to the south. Going straight for the jugular, Sargon attacked Uruk, capital of the current Sumerian ruling dynasty under the priest-king Lugalzagesi. Uruk quickly fell to Sargon's army, and, legend of Gilgamesh notwithstanding, he had its famous walls demolished for good measure. Lugalzagesi managed to escape Uruk and join up with the forces of 50 other Sumerian Enses, great men, from the provinces. In two pitched battles, the Akkadians routed this combined force, eventually capturing Lugalzagesi and bringing him to the city of Nippur, supposedly in a dog collar. So, ouch. Sargon then pursued his remaining enemies to Ur, before moving northwards to Lagash and then westward to Uma. After securing victories over all these city-states, he made a symbolic gesture of washing his weapons in the Lower Sea, the Persian Gulf, to symbolize that his conquest of Sumer was now complete. Following this first round of conquests, and with an eye toward limiting prospects for revolt in Sumer, Sargon appointed a court of 5,400 men to share his table, in other words, administer his conquered territories. These same 5,400 men may have made up the nucleus of his army. In particular, Akkadian governors were appointed to rule over the main city-states of Sumer, in the hopes of keeping the notoriously quarrelsome territory in line. The Akkadians spoke a separate Semitic language, and were also a different ethnic group from the Sumerians, whom they referred to as the people with the black hair. Sargon's victories over the Sumerians, therefore, resulted in the creation of the world's first multi-ethnic empire. This conquest can also be considered the close of purely Sumerian civilization, although Sumerian culture remained highly influential under Akkadian rule, much as the culture of conquered Greece influenced Roman rule in the later classical world. The religious institutions of Sumer, already well-known and emulated by the Semites, were respected, maintained, and supported under the new Akkadian regime. 
Sumerian remained the language of religion, and Sargon and his successors became patrons of the important Sumerian cults. Sargon styled himself anointed priest of Anu and great Ensi of Enlil, and installed his daughter Enheduanna as high priestess of the moon god Nana at Ur. In this role, she wrote several works in Sumerian, earning a distinguished place in history as the first identifiable author in world literature. One notable work was a set of hymns to the temples of 35 Mesopotamian cities, intended as a sort of religious emulation of the unification her father had brought about through force of arms. Near the end of this work, she appeared to acknowledge the milestone nature of both accomplishments, writing, My king, something has been created here that no one has created before. Outside of the religious sphere, the Semitic Akkadian language became the lingua franca of the Near East and was used for all administrative purposes and imperial inscriptions throughout Mesopotamia, a role it would retain until the rise of Aramaic a thousand years later. Shortly after securing Sumer, Sargon embarked on a series of campaigns to subjugate the entire Fertile Crescent, from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. The Akkadians saw themselves as being at the center of the world and surrounded by the Four Quarters, which included the Amorites, or Martu, who ruled the lands of Syria and Canaan west of the Euphrates, Subartu to the north, Sumer to the south, and Elam to the east. The Amorite city of Kazala, just across the Euphrates from Sargon's home city of Kish, was his first target and his victory over its king Kashtubila was both thorough and devastating. According to one ancient source, Sargon laid the city to waste so completely that the birds could not find a place to perch away from the ground. So, again, ouch. Subsequent yearly invasions against the Amorite cities of Syria and Canaan extended Akkadian influence to the shores of the Mediterranean, possibly even as far as Cyprus. Moving north and west, Sargon captured the powerful regional cities of Mari, Yarmouti, and Elba, extending Akkadian influence as far as the Nur and Taurus mountains in modern Turkey, and possibly even doing battle against the early Hittites, who we'll discuss more in a later podcast. These conquests enabled the growing Akkadian Empire to secure trade routes and supplies of wood from Lebanon and precious metals, particularly silver from Anatolia, which were floated down the Euphrates River to Sargon's new capital of Akkad, whose ruins may lie deep beneath modern Baghdad. With the west and northwest subjugated, he next turned his attention to the east. Elam, at the time, was under the Awan dynasty, whose formation had marked the beginning of what is known as the Old Elamite period. Mesopotamian sources concerning Elam become more frequent during this period, since the Sumerians and Akkadians had developed an interest in the resources of the Persian plateau, notably wood, stone, and metal, and military expeditions to the area had become more common. Four leaders of Elam, under the king of Awan, invaded the young Akkadian empire. Sargon utterly defeated the invading army, sacked the Elamite city-states, and made their kings and governors into vassals of Akkad. He also forced the Elamites to abandon their proto-Elamite script in favor of Akkadian cuneiform. Sargon then moved onward to the east and south, and conquered the land of Magan, modern Oman, 
which was forced to supply the empire with copper for bronze production. In addition to his eastern raids and conquests, Sargon also opened up trade routes to even more remote lands. Inscriptions refer to ships from as far afield as Dilmun, modern Bahrain, and Maluha, the Indus Valley civilization, whom we'll be discussing soon, mooring in the harbors of Akkad. Finally, to the north, Sargon subjugated Subartu, bringing the last of the four quarters of the world under Akkadian rule. So, Sargon, you're in charge of the known world. Now what? Well, there's the rub. During this period of ancient history, it was very difficult for conquerors to effectively consolidate their gains. Permanent standing armies did not yet exist. Instead, forces were raised from the local population for yearly campaigns, so direct rule was rarely imposed. Instead, structures were put in place through which the Akkadians could manage commercial interests, trade routes were monopolized, prime agricultural lands were parceled out to Sargon's favorites, and local elites were recruited to collect taxes on behalf of the imperial power, all backed by the constant threat of Akkadian military action. The vast wealth generated by this new imperial system enabled Sargon to undertake numerous monumental building projects, ranging from the erection of images to himself on the shores of the Mediterranean to the construction of new palaces and even new cities. These included not only his new capital of Akkad, but also supposedly the legendary city of Babylon, or at least a very early iteration of that city. The whole system worked well enough while imperial power was strong enough to deter or crush any act of rebellion. Any perception of weakness or instability, though, and local elites would withhold taxes, make competing alliances, or even declare independence. It was a system which demanded constant vigilance and brutal reprisals for disobedience. Among Sargon's most troublesome subjects over his long 56-year reign were the Sumerians. Despite his abiding respect for their culture and traditions, the city-states of Sumer were in an almost perpetual rebellion against his rule. And they were hardly alone. Practically every conquered territory fought to overthrow Akkadian rule at one time or another. Year after year, Sargon was forced to prove his legitimacy as king by engaging in a massive game of whack-a-mole across his vast empire, putting down rebellions and reconquering city-state after city-state. This is all the more remarkable considering the distances involved. Forced marches of days or weeks must have been common. For the next 2,000 years, Mesopotamians would tell tales of the kings who rose against Sargon of Akkad and of his glorious victories over them, citing Sargon's own words from his supposed autobiography. In my old age, all the lands revolted against me, and they besieged me in Akkad. But the old lion still had teeth and claws. I went forth to battle and defeated them. I knocked them over and destroyed their vast army. Now, any king who wants to call himself my equal, wherever I went, let him go. Upon Sargon's death in 2278 BC, the entire empire revolted. Most of the revolts were put down by his son and successor, Rimush, who reigned for nine years before, apparently, being assassinated by his own court. He was followed by another of Sargon's sons, Manishtushu, 
who reigned for 15 years and is perhaps most famous for having fought a sea battle against 32 kings who had gathered to oppose him. Manishtushu's son and successor, Naram-Sin, was the last great Akkadian ruler. He extended the borders of the empire even beyond the conquests of Sargon, and left behind a famous stele commemorating his victory over the Lelubi, a fearsome hill tribe from the Zagros Mountains. In the religious sphere, he outdid Sargon by installing several of his daughters as high priestesses of prominent cults throughout Mesopotamia. Naram-Sin was also the first Near Eastern ruler to declare himself a living god, which he did after crushing a major rebellion across Mesopotamia. Or, as the inscription puts it, when the four corners were hostile to him, he remained victorious in nine battles in a single year because of the love Ishtar bore for him. Because he had been able to preserve his city in a time of crisis, the inhabitants asked that he be made the god of their city Akkad. All later inscriptions show the name of Naram-Sin preceded by the cuneiform sign derived from the image of a star, the Sumerian symbol of godhood. An old Mesopotamian myth says that the goddess Inanna abandoned the city of Akkad, following Naram-Sin's plunder of the temple of Enlil at Nippur. In his anger, Enlil brought the Gutians down from their homeland in the Zagros Mountains to bring plague, famine, and death throughout Mesopotamia. To prevent this destruction, eight of the gods decreed that the city of Akkad should be destroyed to spare the remaining cities. While this story may be mythological, it does reflect the fact that Gutian raids had become a serious concern under Naram-Sin's rule. During the reign of his son Sharkilashari, the combination of internal revolts and external conflicts were finally driving the Akkadian Empire toward complete collapse. Interestingly, this collapse corresponds roughly with the fall of the Egyptian Old Kingdom, which we'll be discussing next episode. It's been theorized that decreasing rainfall and a corresponding severe drought in the eastern Mediterranean might have played a significant role in the fall of both civilizations. In Mesopotamia, crops and animals, and finally people, began to perish, with many of the survivors becoming desperate refugees, surging into cities whose irrigation-based agricultural system could no longer support them. Whatever environmental factors may have been at play, the final nail in the Akkadian coffin was clear. In 2154 BC, the empire suffered a massive invasion by the Gutians. The capital of Akkad was utterly destroyed, centralized rule collapsed almost immediately, and the entire territory reverted back to a collection of independent states. Many of these states fell under Gutian rule, while some, like Lagash, continued to thrive under local dynasties. The best-known Sumerian ruler of the Gutian period was Gudea, the Ensi of Lagash, who oversaw a brief golden age of art and literature in his city. The Elamite king Kutik and Shushinak took advantage of this power vacuum to declare independence from Akkad, throwing off the Akkadian language for good measure and restoring the short-lived Proto-Elamite script. Kutik and Shushinak went on to conquer the nearby cities of Susa and Anshan, and seems to have achieved some sort of political unity for a time. 
However, following his reign, the Awan dynasty also collapsed. In most other regions, the post-Akkadian period was so chaotic that the Sumerian king's list literally cries out in exasperation, who was king, who was not king. The Guti proved to be poor rulers, too unaccustomed to the complexities of civilization to organize and maintain its most vital components. This was particularly true of the Mesopotamian network of canals, which was allowed to sink into disrepair, with the predictable result of widespread famine and death. Around 2100 BC, King Utu-Hegal of Ur finally managed to drive the Gutians out of Mesopotamia. His brother and successor, Ur-Namu, went on to restore Sumerian-Akkadian political unity under the Third Dynasty of Ur, typically abbreviated as Ur III. This new empire, ethnically a mix of Sumerians and Akkadians, but which I'll call Akkadian for convenience, was smaller but more centrally organized than the old Akkadian Empire. It consisted of two distinct parts, the heartland of Sumer and Akkad, governed by parallel civil and military administrations, and a military-controlled zone to the east between the Tigris and the Zagros Mountains, essentially the Elamite heartland. Beyond this zone lay the rest of the Near East, where either diplomatic contacts were maintained or where the armies of Ur raided. The Ur III dynasty left us with an enormous treasure trove of written records, covering military campaigns and building activity, as well as hymns celebrating the great deeds of their kings. Shugli, one of the longest reigning and most influential Ur III rulers, had written about him in glowing first person, to my delight, the god Enlil spoke favorably about me, and they gave me the scepter because of my righteousness. I place my foot on the neck of the foreign lands. The fame of my weapons is established. The clay bullets, the treacherous pellets that I shoot, fly around like a violent rainstorm. In my rage, I do not let them miss. At the same time as Akkadian poets were perfecting the ancient art of kissing up, Ur III rulers were also taking early forays into the art of diplomacy. Even under Ur III domination, Elam was still a regional power, and King Shushin gave one of his daughters in marriage to a prince of Anshan, the new Elamite capital, in an attempt to bind the lands more closely through blood. Despite this gesture, Elam continued to chafe under the Akkadian yoke, always vigilant for an opportunity to regain its independence. Toward the end of Ur III, large numbers of Amorite immigrants from the west had also begun to pose an existential threat to the nature of Akkadian society. The threat was considered serious enough that Shu Sin was obliged to construct a 170-mile-long wall from the Tigris to the Euphrates to forestall the virtual invasion. They probably also had Akkadian Minutemen on ancient lawn chairs keep an eye on the border. The Amorites at the time were organized into semi-nomadic clans ruled by fierce tribal chiefs who forced themselves into lands they needed to graze their herds. Akkadian literature often speaks disparagingly of the Amorites, viewing their nomadic way of life with disgust and contempt. According to one tract, The Amorite, he is dressed in sheepskins. He lives in tents in wind and rain. He doesn't offer sacrifices. 
armed vagabond of the steppe, he digs up truffles and is restless. He eats raw meat, lives his life without a home, and when he dies, he is not buried according to proper rituals. I know, it's pretty strong stuff, but I thought you needed to hear it. I'm guessing the Amorites were also accused of being lazy while simultaneously stealing all the good Akkadian jobs. Ah, progress. A recurring theme of Mesopotamian history is the almost continuous pattern of immigration by desert nomads and hill tribes, all considered backward, uncouth barbarians by the dominant civilization, before being slowly assimilated into Sumerian culture, only to look down their noses at the next wave of newcomers. Ironically, many of these immigrant tribes, including the Amorites, Kassites, and Chaldeans, would go on to form strong local dynasties that would preserve and defend Sumerian culture against even greater threats to its existence. A loose comparison can be made between the Sumerians, Akkadians, and desert nomads, and the Greeks, Romans, and barbarians beyond their frontiers. The first group provided the dominant cultural template, the second the military strength to both spread the culture and defend it against invaders, with the third group constantly pushing against the borders and either asking or demanding to be let in and share the wealth. Fortunately for Rome, she had actual defensible geographic frontiers to defend, primarily rivers and virtually impassable deserts. Mesopotamia, by contrast, has no natural boundaries, and its fertile land and wealthy cities were perpetually vulnerable to attack or invasion from warlike peoples in surrounding areas, which were never in short supply. Over time, the centralized structure of domination by Ur-3 began to collapse and component regions began to reassert their independence. The reasons for this were numerous and include high grain prices, the result of several bad harvests, and the empire's growing difficulty in collecting taxes from outlying provinces. By this stage, despite Shushin's Great Wall, the Amorites had managed to infiltrate Mesopotamia so thoroughly as to become integrated into all levels of Akkadian society. Some Amorites took advantage of the increasing disarray to seize local power. There was never an Amorite invasion per se, not like the Gutian invasion that put an end to the old Akkadian Empire, but Amorites did take control of several prominent cities at the time, including Isin, Larsa, and Babylon. But the final hammer blow for Ur-3 came from the east, when King Kandatu of Shamashki finally managed to overthrow the empire's domination of the Elamite heartland. In 2004 BC, he led the liberated armies of Elam into Mesopotamia, captured the great city of Ur, and took King Ibisin into captivity at Susa, effectively putting an end to the Third Dynasty. Ur was forced to endure seven years of occupation before King Ishbi-era of Isin, an Amorite successor state to Ur, finally managed to drive the Elamites from the city. The next few centuries would be dominated by ongoing conflict between Amorite and Elamite successor kingdoms, which we'll cover in a later podcast. Next week, we'll travel down into Egypt to cover one of the most important eras of Egyptian civilization, the Old Kingdom. And yes, oh yes, we will be seeing pyramids. 
Great ones, small ones, bent ones, step ones, true ones, and even a few that didn't quite make the grade. Then we'll travel to the east to witness the brief glory of the Indus Valley civilization of ancient Pakistan, whose caravans and merchant ships ventured as far as Sumer, Elam, Egypt, and possibly even Crete. Next time on The Ancient World. <laughs>